Each man then took his post at their retire. So then these numerous hosts began to fire. The cannon on each side did roar like thunder, and youths in all their pride were torn asunder. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we have come to it. Um, after 30-some episodes of exploring the works of Francis Parkman Jr., beginning with the Oregon Trail, then Pontiac's Revolt, and then the seven volumes of France and England and North America, we have come to the climax of this, of this epic story, this epic conflict for empire in North America with uh, the, his account of the fall of Quebec. So that'll be the final chapters of Montcalm and Wolfe. Um, the final volume of this 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 history that's really is the the American version of, of Gibbon, describing a, an epic history, an epic narrative history describing the fall of a of a great empire. So you probably know the the history of the fall of New France, or at least in broad outlines. Um, in 1759, uh, we see the fall of Fort Ticonderoga, the fall of Niagara, and the fall of Quebec at the Battle of, of well, after the Battle of the of the Plains of Abraham, and then later on a siege of, of Quebec leads to the to the fall of Quebec. Um, there is a French effort to retake Quebec at the at a victorious battle at at Saint Foy. Uh, and then a failed siege of Quebec, and then that basically putting an end to the fighting in North America. But a few years later, in 1763, at the Peace of Paris, the fate, the final fate of, of French Canada would be ultimately decided in, in a peace treaty. So um, that's the events of this, this story. We see the fall of Wolf, of course, uh, one of the more dramatic um, falls of a general in, in American history, immortalized in the 1776 painting by Benjamin West, the, the, the death of General Wolfe. So I think the main thing I want to focus on in this episode is, is how Parkman concludes his history and how he ties this history to the American Revolution. Um, and, and if you read like Pontiac's Revolt as a coda to this history, which is I think a legitimate way to read it if you wanted to do it that way, um, in fact, I think Library of America published these volumes first and then later published the volume with Oregon Trail and Pontiac's Revolt. So if you, you know, kind of ordered these chronologically as they were published, you would have France and England and North America, then the Oregon Trail and then Pontiac's Revolt. So it does sort of appear as a coda to the Library of America's mission of publishing uh, Parkman's work. But uh, we read it first because uh, we were looking at the, those were his earliest historical works. Um, but anyways, I, I kind of want to explore this as, as the final word of, of, of Parkman on, on New France. I think we know his thesis quite well by now, the very different institutional foundations, institutional and social and political foundations of New France versus British North America led to intractable problems that New France just simply could not overcome and gave a decisive advantage to... to, to um, Great Britain. I have I've kind of questioned that thesis at various times in this series, um, and it seems to me after reading Montcalm and Wolfe, really a lot has to do with leadership 
And a lot has to do with political capital and political will from their cap respective capitals. Um, Pitt just invested the resources to win the war, while Paris was not willing to, to do that as it was becoming engulfed in a much more titanic global struggle that it felt it had to win in multiple places to be successful. And I think they, they had the, the sort of the plan like they had with Lewisburg in the previous treaty. Like if we win a place here or, you know, and, and, and lose a place there, in the peace settlement, we can just sort of trade them out. That's what happened with Lewisburg. It was uh, a territory in India was traded for Lewisburg. But, um, you know, France would not be able to do that in 1763, obviously, losing losing now Quebec, but keeping maybe the most important colony in the New World, the one never mentioned in Parkman's history at all, and that would be, be Haiti, Saint-Domingue. Um, France would lose that to a, a slave revolution um, in, in the following decades. So anyways, uh, yeah, we'll look at the, we'll take a special close look at the conclusion to this um, and the chapter on the Peace of Paris, because all of this helps set up the American Revolution. So, but anyways, let's start. We got chapter 26, um, the first one we'll look at, and I'll be brief here with this history because I want to get, focus my energies on the, on the conclusions. But um, <clears throat> Amherst, Niagara. So this, remember I mentioned last time, if you listened to the last episode, there were three prongs in, in this final strategy to conquer Quebec. One was the amphibious landing near Quebec by Wolfe and the siege of Quebec. Another was an, another attempt at taking Fort Ticonderoga and the Hudson, and another was the taking of, of Niagara. So this chapter deals with uh, the, the fall of, of, the final fall of Fort Ticonderoga and the Niagara ex expedition, the siege of Niagara and the fall of, of, of that for the Fran French. So this basically ends the fighting in the frontier regions. Well, at least until Pontiac's revolt, right? Would, would actually become a much more brutal war um, so what Parkman writes about it, the capture of Niagara was an important stroke. Thenceforth, Detroit, Michelamackinac, and the Illinois, and all the other French interior posts were severed from Canada and left to helpless isolation. But Amherst was not yet satisfied. On hearing of Purdue's death, he sent Brigadier Gage to supersede him, Johnson to take command of Lake Ontario, directing him to descend the St. Lawrence, attack the French force at the head of the rapids, and hold them, if possible, for the winter. So it, it basically breaks... I mean, that was a big problem with... Uh, this French Indian alliance is it, it was contingent on victory. It was contingent on support. And when that support fell because of a French fort collapsed and they couldn't get supply or they couldn't trade or they seemed to be losing, these Indian alliances began to break down quite, quite quickly. So these interior posts were important for sustaining these Indian alliances and the loss of those would undermine those as well. Actually, I should say this, this ended major military campaigns in this region. It didn't end the fighting entirely, because we do get a story here as well of, a, of some pretty vicious um, war, warfare against the Indians, um, you know, the, this more genocidal type of, of war against the Indians. Um, Ma major Robert Rogers was sent to punish the Abenakis of St. Francis, and that's described here. Really, really brutal stuff. I mean massacring entire towns. Things we come to expect from these, these proxy wars engaged by the French and the English against each other via Indian communities. So chapter 27 is uh, 
the Heights of Abraham. This is just a great chapter to read if you want the the, the climax of the story, um, so to speak. Uh, obviously, Wolf struggled for months to try to find a way to uh, get an advantage in the siege, and he wanted these Heights of Abraham, um, this location, to to be a strategic position. I, I didn't try to look at the geography of the <clears throat> of the battlefield. But, you know, so he eventually landed some troops on the North Shore to get access to that. He had to fight this battle. Um, so despite the siege going on for months, the decisive battle lasted only about an hour. And, um, of course, it led to the death of Wolf and Montcalm, who both died in the, in the battle. So you can be in store for, for a fair amount of pathos with, uh, you know, this... This epic history of this war being kind of condensed into this one moment when these two figures die. I mean, I'm sure there's other moments like that in military history. Um, you know, and many battles have their moments of pathos and individual uh, kind of drama. And this is certainly one, especially on, at least in the English, in, in English literature, it's the, it's the focus on Wolf. Um, but my, my sense of this is just, is Wolf's, uh, kind of fatalism about this battle, his feeling that he could just, would not succeed and there was no way to kind of crack this nut of Quebec. And then the, kind of the, the choice to, to, to fight a pitch battle was one almost suicidal, right? This belief that he would die. And so he kind of went into the battle expecting to die rather than to go home kind of in disgrace um, at, at having failed in the siege of 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 Quebec. Um, so there's kind of a bit of desperation in that. And I think that that adds a lot of the drama to this to this interesting chapter. We also have descriptions of, of essentially war crimes here as uh, Wolf sent rangers out into the villages to terrorize the villages. This included dressing up like Indians and scalping people. Um, so quite a lot of atrocities here. But again, I think this also came out of the just this desperation that the English were feeling in their, their inability to defeat uh, Quebec. Um, now, Parkman here sort of pirouettes on this particular, um, these particular war crimes, saying, most of the French writers at the time mentioned these barbar barbarities without much comment, while Vaudrille loudly denounces them. Yet he himself was answerable for atrocities incomparably worse and on a far larger scale. He had turned loose to savages, red and white, along a frontier of 600 miles to waste, burn, and murder all at will. Women and children, such were the orders of Wolf, are to be treated with humanity. If any violence is offered to a woman, the offender shall be punished with death. These orders were generally obeyed. The English, with the single exception of Montgomery, killed none but armed men in the act of resistance or attack. Vaudreuil's war party spared neither age nor sex. And by, by kind of uh, blaming the French here, he is, in a sense, saying, well, it was the Indians who committed these atrocities, but just as tools, just as uh, uh, tools of the, of, the French, of the French allies. So once again, even at the, end of this, at, the, at the end of this book, we get this vision of the Indians largely as various tools of the, of the French and the English. Just an unfortunate part that you have to deal with when reading Parkman. Now, as we might expect, uh, Parkman doesn't spare any um, ink here in glowing over Wolf's uh, leadership and, 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 and commitment and, and passion and energy. Uh, I like this paragraph, quote, 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 Wolf was everywhere. 
how cool he was and why his followers loved him is shown in an incident that happened in the course of the morning. One of the captains was shot through the lungs, and on recovering consciousness, he saw the general standing at his side. Wolf pressed his hand, told him not to despair, praised his service, promised him early promotion, and sent an aide to camp to Montcond to beg to that officer to keep the promise that he, if he himself should fall. Now, the contrast between the death of these two generals is, is worth noting, at least as presented by Parkman. Um, Wolf dies when moving to another part of the battlefield to kind of rally a point where he thought there was a, a crisis. Quote, it was towards 10 o'clock when from the high ground on the front of the line, Wolf saw the crisis was near. The French on the ridge had formed themselves into three bodies, regulars in the center, regulars of Canadians on the right and left. Two pieces, two field pieces had been dragged up the heights of Anz de Fodou, fired on them with grape shot, and the troops rising from the ground prepared to receive them. In a few moments, they were in motion. Okay, a little bit more description. And then at the English right, through the attacking column were broke though the attacking column was broken to pieces the fire still kept up chiefly it seemed by sharpshooters from the bushes and cornfields where they had lain for hours or more here wolf himself led the charge at the head of lewisburg grenaders a shot shattered his wrist he wrapped his handkerchief around it and kept on another shot struck him while he advanced when a third lodged in his breast and then you get the these dramatic stories of of how he tried to remain conscious during the battle and he didn't die until he was he was told the battle was going well now here's the narrative of Montcalm's death uh, Montcalm still on horseback was born with the tide of fugitives towards the town as he approached the walls a shot passed through his body he kept his seat two soldiers supported him one on each side and led his horse through the St. Louis gate on the open space within among the excited crowd were several women drawn no doubt by eagerness to know the result of the fights one of them shrieked when they saw the streaming blood in and said, Oh, mon Dieu, mon Dieu, la marquise est tout. It's nothing, it's nothing, replied the death-stricken man. Don't be troubled for me, my good friends. End quote. So, not a bad death, but Wolf is presented as dying in battle, like in the front lines, like rallying the troops. Montcalm is killed, basically shot while escaping the battlefield with the other survivors of the battle. And... Wolf dies surrounded by soldiers and warriors. Montcalm is surrounded by women. Uh, Montcalm is being propped up by his aides. You know, Wolf is is is, is on his own. It's it's a it's a very different depiction of of, of these these two generals' deaths. And and maybe for Parkman, it summarizes a lot of the threads of that have been running through this book. I don't know. I, I think these are both aristocratic empires, and we shouldn't make too much of the democracy argument, at least for British North America, for reasons I've talked about um, several times in this podcast already. But as literature, it sort of works. It's a, it's a nice contrast. Um, so um, chapter 28, The Fall of Quebec. Um, so the death of Montcalm kind of gives a space for um, the general who who succeeded uh, Montcalm to to kind of blame Montcalm and then leave Quebec? If it was you know he wouldn't be blamed for the fall, he could pass the blame onto the dead general. Actually, it was the governor. It was the governor um, Vaudreuil who decided to abandon Quebec eventually. So once it became clear after this battle of the Fields of Abraham, it became clear that the that the the siege could not be won, and so the decision came to to basically abandoned Quebec. 
the biggest important thing about this chapter, the most important thing about this chapter, it seems to be, is uh, the the impact of the fall of Quebec on on the kind of on the news of the war and the kind of the media of the war and the, the impact it had on Europe and on the European powers. Um, and he writes, for instance, hardly were the lines written when tidings came that Montcalm was defeated, Quebec taken and Wolfe killed. A flood of mixed emotions swept over England. Even Walpole grew half serious as he sent a packet of newspapers to his friendly ambassador. You may now give yourself what airs you please. An ambassador is the only man in the world whom bullying becomes. All precedents are at your side. Persian, Greek, Romans always insulted their neighbors when they took Quebec. Think how pert the French would have been on such an occasion. What a scene. An army in the night dragging itself up a precipice by stumps of trees to assault a town and attack king, an enemy strongly entrenched in double their numbers. The king is overwhelmed with addresses on our victories. We'll have enough, we'll, we'll have enough to paper his palace. When in soberer mood they wrote the annals of his time and turned not for the better from the epistolatory style to the historical, he thus described the impression made on the English public by the touching and inspiring story of Wolfe's heroism and death. The incidents of dramatic fiction could not be conducted with more address to lead an audience from despondency to sudden exultation than accident prepared to excite the passions of the whole people. They despaired, they triumphed, and they wept, for Wolfe had fallen in the hour of victory. Joy, curiosity, astonishment was painted on every countenance, end quote. So it's, it's really kind of this nationalism kind of emerging, right? It, this, it's, it's kind of before the age of nationalism, really, but certainly you start to see national identities becoming stronger. Um, um, it's, you know, the British identity is still being formed in the 18th century. I mean, even in the middle of the 18th century, you had the Jacobite uprisings. So there's still this effort to kind of create a national identity and symbols help. I think, and victories help certainly, but but symbols help, and the death of Wolf can kind of become that symbol um, of of the nation, right? In in a way that's more inspiring than maybe the king, or you know, or or even just a flag or something. So I, I think there's a little bit here of, of nation building, and and I I'm, I'm you know I, I've been wondering actually for a while now why the death of Wolf. You know, is such a iconic image, even in the Americas. You know, because you have this revolution against Britain. You know, and why I can understand maybe the British making Wolf a symbol of their nation, but the fact that the Americans, to a degree, did the same, I, I kind of struck me as as a bit odd. Um, you know, especially you got this kind of Emersonian Emerson, Emerson's kind of claim that you need to break free of English traditions and create a true American culture and American identity. And, and America has its, plenty of its own heroes as well. It doesn't need General Wolfe. But, you know, I, I kind of grok it a little bit when I'm reading this section about how this, his death, you know, the right place, the right time, you know, he's the right figure, this inspiring figure, young, a good family man, you know, Parkman goes into a great detail describing his virtues and all that makes him kind of an ideal figure to to help build a name, build a, to be a symbol of nation building in a way. And, and what better time to kind of solidify that than during a victory that he was integral in achieving. 
Now, one last thing about this chapter, though, is the is the plundering of Quebec by the French. Uh, you know, Parkman doesn't waste any time here in reminding us that the French regime in Canada at this time was totally corrupt. We already had a chapter on that, the Bigot chapter, about this, the corruption. He was eventually tried for corruption. Um, but we have a paragraph here um, where he describes basically how on their way out, they, they took what they could. Um, quote, his charges are strange ones from a man who by turns the patron, advocate, and tool of official villains who cheated the king and plundered the people. Bigot, Kada, and the rest of the harpies that preyed on Canada looked to Vaudrell for support and found it. It was but three or four weeks since he had written to the court in high eulogy of Bigot and infused praise on Cadet, coupled with requests that a patent of nobility should be given to the notorious public thief. The corruptions which disgraced his government were rife, not only in the civil administration, but also among the officers of the colonial troops over whom he had complete control. They did not, as had been already been ex at they did not, as had been seen already, extended to the officers of the line who were outside the circles of peculation. It was these who were the habitual associates of Montcalm. And when Vaudreuil charges him with attaching to himself the most disreputable persons and using means to corrupt the most virtuous, the true interpretation of his words is that the former were disreputable because they disliked him, the governor, and the later virtuous because they were his partisans." End quote. So even at the end, even at the fall of Quebec, we were reminded of how deep the corruption, the pettiness, the internal bickering, the, the factionalism, all the things that plague New France for, for a century are still there at the end. And we are told by Parkman, this is all integral in its fall. All right, chapter 29, Saint Foy. This is, uh, this is set mostly in 1760. This was uh, the follow-up battle, kind of the second siege of Quebec, if you will. Uh, so the French troops are now under this guy, what's his name? Levy, yeah, Levy, I think his name is. Uh, Levy, L-E-V-I-S. And so the, you have the winter in Quebec. So this is, uh, this battle is during, I believe, the, maybe the battle's in 1759 and the French siege is in 1760. No, that can't be, you couldn't fight a battle in the winter. So yeah, I think it was in the spring. It was in the spring, of, it was in April of 1760. In the next campaign season, the French, you know, attempt to lay siege to Quebec. The, the remaining French troops in the region um, attempt to do this. This actually was a bigger battle than the Battle of the Fields of the Plains of Abraham. Um, and it was a French victory, in fact. But the difference is this battle did not lead to a successful siege of Quebec. Um, the, the French attempted it, but the siege was very quickly broken up and failed. Um, so there's a second siege of Quebec in 1760. But if you want to kind of look at it, you know, it was a contested seizure of Quebec in 1759. The French were, had a chance to try to take it back. They failed to do that. And so with 1760, you, you have the clear fall of New France. This was the last chance in a way. As Parkman puts it, though, it was just a, a futile effort. Quote, the effort to recover Quebec did great honor to the enterprise of the French, but it availed them nothing, served only the waste resources that seemed already at the lowest ebbs, and gave French opportunity of plunder to Cadet and his crew, who failed not to make use of it. So once again, the, the corruption. Um. Um, so next chapter, chapter 30, is the fall of Canada. 
And so the failure of the siege of Quebec basically left little hope for New France to survive, at least outside of a peace negotiation. Um, and the only thing really described in this chapter is the, the final um, siege of, of Montreal and the taking of Montreal. That was like the last holdout, major significant holdout. Um, but we do get uh, Parkman's kind of summation of, of this war. And he kind of tries to break up the argument that the reason for British victory was numbers, was a numerical advantage. Um, so he writes this, on the American continent, the war was ended and the British colonists breathed for a space as they drifted unwittingly towards the deadlier strife. They had learned hard and useful lessons, their mutual jealousies and disputes, their quarrels of their governors and assemblies, the want of any general military organization and the absence in most of them of military habits joined to narrow views of their own interests had unfitted them for the last degree of carrying on offensive war. Nor were the British troops sent for their support remarkable in their beginning of, of, for good discipline or efficient command. When hostilities broke out, the army of Great Britain was so small as hardly worth the name. The new one had to be created, and thus the inexperienced Shirley and the incompetent Loudon, with the futile Newcastle behind them, had besides their own incapacity the disadvantage of raw troops and half-formed officers. Um, so this paragraph is saying, you know, this... You know, this, this war was kind of fought from scratch. It was kind of like American World War II, right? Like the, the military started out quite small and it had to kind of be built up. Um, and it built up in the colonies, uh, in the conversation with the colonials. And I think that's that for Parkman is key to the lead up to the American Revolution. Then he has a nice paragraph on geography. Uh, quote, the nature of the country was another cause that helped to protect protract the contest. Geography, he said, Moltke, is three-fourths of military science, and never was the truth of the words more fully exemplified. Canada was fortified with vast outworks of defense in the savage forests, marshes, and mountains that encompassed her, and the thoroughfares were streams choked with fallen trees and obstructed by cataracts. Never was the problem of moving troops encumbered with baggage and artillery a more difficult one. The question was less how to fight an enemy than how to get at him. If a few practical roads had crossed the broad tracks of wilderness, the war would have been shortened and its character changed. So this is quite good. This is a quite modern view of war, I think, seeing that more about where troops are, mobilization, supply, logistics, and all that. But then he gets to the numerical thing. He says, from these and other reasons, the numerical superiority of the English was to some extent made unavailing. The superiority, though exaggerated by French writers, was nonetheless immense, if estimated, by the number of men called to arms, but only a part of these could be employed in offensive operations. The rest garrisoned forts and blockhouses and guarded the far reaches, frontiers from Nova Scotia to South Carolina, where the wily enemy, silent and secret as fate, choosing his own time and place of attack and striking unawares at every unguarded spot, compelled thousands of men uh, to keep unceasing watch against a few savage marauders. Full half of the levies of the colonies, many of the regulars were used in services of this kind. So picking on the Indians again, of course, blaming them for the, the nature of the, the, the stretching thin of British troops. Then he says, in, in many of the battles, actually, the French had a numerical advantage, even if overall the British had a larger, um, had the larger advantage of troops. 
Um, and then he, he concludes here, yet in this most picturesque and dramatic of American wars, there's nothing more, more noteworthy than the skill with which the French and Canadian leaders use their advantages, the indomitable spirit with which slighted and abandoned they were. They grappled with prodigious difficulties and the courage with which they were seasoned by regulars and militia alike. In, in spite of occasional lapses, the defense of Canada deserves a tribute of admiration. So he is able to throw out a little bit of martial praise to the defense of, of, of Quebec. All right. Final chapter, the Peace of Paris. So he goes into some detail here about the war in Europe, uh, the reason there wasn't a peace settlement until 1763, um, had a lot to do with the fact that the war in Europe was still raging, even if it was dying down in, in, in America. So in 1760, basically it's over in the Americas, but it would be, still be fought in India, Caribbean, and, and most notably Europe. So until that war was resolved, there couldn't be a general peace settlement. Um, obviously that comes in, in 1763, the Treaty of Paris. <clears throat> and now the main question for us, obviously Prussia is able to hold on to Silesia. That's the main outcome in, in Europe. We had the, the French-Austrian alliance uh, was was basically defeated. So the Prussians are able to keep their their gains. But the question for the Americas was, should Canada be restored? Um, should France be permitted to keep a foothold on the North American continent? These are Parkman's words. Ever since the capitulation of Montreal, a swarm of pamphlets had discussed the momentous subject. Some maintained that the acquisition of Canada was not an original object of the war, and the colony was of little value and should be given back to its old masters. That Guadalupe should be kept instead. The sugar trade of the island being far worth far more than the Canadian fur trade. And lastly, that the British colonists, if no longer held in check by France, would spread themselves over the continent, learn to supply all their own wants, grow independent, and become dangerous. So a lot to unpack there. I mean, the one argument is give France back Quebec because we can get a much more valuable sugar island, just a little Guadalupe, worth more than all of the fur trade of Canada. The second being, if, if we don't have the French to check the colonists, they'll eventually become a major power, which, of course, is what happens um, with, you know, not just in the American Revolution, which is being predicted there, but in the fact that when the U.S. dominated the continent, they would become the major world power. It would take a century or two or two to get there. But, you know, that, that's, it's right in a way. Um, now, the other argument was put forth by Franklin, apparently, um, Basically, we should take um, Canada. Quote, the most noteworthy argument on the other side was that of Franklin, whose words find a strange commentary in the events of the next few years. He affirmed that the colony colonies were so jealous of each other that they would never unite against England. If they could not agree to unite against the French and Indians, can it be reasonable to suppose that there is any danger in their uniting against their, their own nation, which is well known they all, which, which is well known, they all love much more than they love one another. I will venture to say union amongst them for such a purpose is not merely impossible, but improbable, it is impossible. And then he prudently adds, without the grievous tyranny and oppression, like, like the bloody wolf Alva in the Netherlands. Now, maybe um, you could say King George III's policies towards the Americas was the most grievous tyranny of oppression comparable to the rule of Alva in the Netherlands. I don't know. But obviously Franklin changes his mind on this at some point. But 
He's saying. I mean, he's really. He's still. He's still um, bitter about the failure of the Albany plan. It seems. So, anyways, um, Pitt finally is able to demand the terms. Um, he wants to undermine the maritime and colonial power of France as significantly as possible, it seems. And taking Canada seems to do that. So what are the terms? Well, France cedes to Great Britain, Canada, and all her possessions in North America, continent east of the Mississippi, except the city of New Orleans. She renounces all claims to Acadia, island of Cape Breton, uh, all other islands in the Gulf and the rivers of St. Lawrence, but essentially all of Canada. Spain gets back Havana, uh, paid for it with the secession of Florida and all her other possessions east of the Mississippi. Um, France, subject to certain restrictions, was left free to fish in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. In the West Indies, England restored the captured islands of Guadalupe, Martellante, Desdierde, and Martinique. And France ceded Grenada and the Grenadines. So, um, so France did lose some territory in the Caribbean. But not the main sugar islands. Um, some neutral islands were given to England, others to France. Anyways, it's uh, some other... In India, France loses everything. In Africa, France cedes Senegal. And of course, Senegal is going to be important because uh, that will be... Um, well, France at some point must get Senegal back. Um, but it becomes, that's, that's kind of the Sierra Leone or the Liberia of France, where many uh, former slaves were, were sent to after emancipation. But anyways, that's the end of the Seven Years' War and the resolution of the French and Indian War. Um, and that's, that's the book. Uh, that's the epic history. We have a little bit of a conclusion here where uh, it's actually chapter 20, 32, where Parkman gets into some of the consequences of of the war. So let's uh, let's summarize this chapter. He starts out saying this is like the roots, the foundation of the rise of Prussia and uh, unified Germany. So he, he starts mentioning a little bit that's not the main concern of his entire work. Um, so what about with France itself? Well, he sees the ultimate result of this is accelerating the inevitable, quote, inevitable downfall of the French monarchy. So he writes, through centuries of strife and vicissitude, the French monarchy had triumphed over nobles, parliaments, and people, gathering to itself all the forces of the state, beamed with elusive splendors under Louis the Great, and shone with the phosphorescence of decay under a contemptible successor, till now robbed of prestige, burning with debt, and mirrored with corruption. It was moving swiftly and more uh, swiftly and more swiftly towards the abyss of ruin. Um, the other thing it did. Instead of, in addition to accelerating the downfall of the French monarchy, was undermining this effort to create a French maritime and colonial empire. Colbert's dream is, is ended um, in the New World, in India, and in other places, in, in Africa. Um, quote, in India, she was reduced to helpless inferiority. Uh, in North, of all our boundless territories in North America, nothing was left but two island rocks on the coast of Newfoundland that the victors had given her for drying her codfish. Now, the, the picture for England is a little bit more subtle. The political consequences of the war for Parkman are a little bit more subtle. Because uh, you have the same conflict between central power and, and monarchy. And in England, of course, it, it, you end up with this dual system, this mixed system, this constitutional monarchy in 1688. In France, you end up with absolutism. 
Um, so he writes, in England, as in France, the several members of the state had battled together since national life began. And the result had been not the unchecked domination of the crown, but a symbol of balance and adjusted forces in which king, nobility, and commons all had their recognized places and their share of power. Thus, in the war just ended, two great conditions of success had been supplied. A people in instinct with energies of ordered freedom and a masterly leadership to inspire and direct them, end quote. So he thinks this mixture helped contribute to their victory. This, this ability to kind of get the resources in support of the masses while having this kind of stable conservative leadership. But of course, uh, in the next paragraph, Parkman establishes how this is the foundation of a global British empire and even mentions Captain Cook, whose voyages would be set off in the, in the following years after the, the Peace of Paris. So most importantly, though, it ends the history of, of New France. Quote, a story which would have been the history if faults of constitution and the bigotry and the folly of rules, rules are not dwarfed to an episode. Yet it is a noteworthy one in both its light and its shadows. In the disinterested zeal of the founders of Quebec, the self-devotion of the early missionary martyrs, and the daring enterprise of explorers, and the spiritual and temporal vassalage from which only escape was the savagery of the wilderness, and the swamping corruptions which were the natural result of the attempt to rule. By the absolute hand of a master beyond the Atlantic, a people bereft of every vestige of civil liberty. Civil liberty was given to them by British sword. By the conqueror left them a religious, but the conqueror left their religious system untouched. And through it, they had imposed upon themselves a weight of ecclesiastical tutelage that finds few equals in the most Catholic countries of Europe. So its guardianship is not without certain advantages. When faithfully exercised, it aids to uphold some of the tamer virtues, if it can be called a virtue which needs constant presence of a sentinel to keep it from escaping. But it is fatal, but it is fatal to mental robustness and moral courage. And if French Canada would fulfill its aspirations, it must cease to be one of the most priest-ridden communities of the modern world. So this paragraph that I just read summarizes not only the entire history that Parkman wrote. I mean, he actually had like one sentence for each book, in a way, uh, kind of as an advertisement of those books or a, a summary, if, you know, a reminder of the themes of those books he throws in there. But he, he makes the claim here fairly bold that that... You know, the British gave the French civil liberties at the point of the sword, but the French, by keeping hold to their Catholicism, have, have kind of only gotten half of what they could have gotten out of that. It's pretty, pretty uh, nasty anti-Catholic sentiment for someone who spends his whole life studying Roman Catholicism in, in some way. Parkman, I mean, you know, he, he should know better than to reduce it to just a kind of tyrannical uh, Kind of an extension of absolutism but he does whatever now the final paragraph of this whole history is is leading up to the american revolution and he mentions how within years of this victory you start to see this the the stirrings of revolt against their mother country and it seems that argument that without new france to be a check on the colonists eventually the colonists would find they don't need the mother country anymore um, but that's another story. So anyways, uh, that is my read-through of the works of Francis Parkman, especially France and England and North America. Uh, I guess my question is, should you read this? Um, I don't know. Um, it's 3,000 pages. It 
takes a while. I wouldn't read it as I read it as straight through. I might, I mean, it might, it might be fun to, to read one volume a year or something. Um, and, or one volume a month, maybe. I don't know about reading the whole thing in, in a month and a half like I did, if that'd be a good idea. It's, it can get tedious at times. There's a lot of narrative military history. If you like that, if, if you like that kind of the pathos of the battlefield, um, it's good. Uh, if you want to talk about 19th century views about Indians, I think this is a useful text in some of its more progressive um, descriptions of Indians, such as seeing them as having history, uh, their diversity of political systems. But at the same time, you have to shovel through a lot of, sh a lot of crap, a lot of uh, racism, a lot of prejudice, a lot of view, a lot of ideas of, that still continue to see Indians as largely um, tools of European powers, particularly brutal and savage, and that, that kind of language you still have to work through. Um, but I do think there are reasons to go at this for understanding um, Indian history. If you're interested in Western history and the history of the frontier, I think these are indispensable books to at least understand what the views were in the 19th century before getting more recent history. Um, I think it's, it's, it's got literary merits. I think that's ultimately why we'll come, you would come to this, because there are better books written about the Seven Years' War, about French Canada since then. But you would want to read this just as a literary effort and, and for the audacity, the boldness, the, the lifelong effort to, to tell this history, I think, is, is impressive just as a work of literature. So I would recommend it for that reason. But it's not going to be for everyone. It's, it's not going to be for most people, I guess. But I think for some people, it might be worth checking out. Um, so I guess that's it. Um, we have worked our way through the entire works of Francis Parkman. Uh, there's a few other things he wrote. He wrote some anti-suffrage work. He wrote, um, he was against women having the right to vote. Yeah, he was, he, he did some other writings, but they're not included in the Library of America. So, um, yeah, I, I think they're interesting. So check them out if you want. If you have your own thoughts about Francis Parkman, now that we've reached the end, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So what to do now? Um, well, here's what we're going to do. I only have one book in front of me. So one book left. The rest are in Taiwan. So I, I, didn't, I didn't bring that many books to, to China and... I don't know when I'm going to get another one, but thankfully I, I've kind of stored enough episodes in the can. I can, I can hold out for a while, but I do have one more book that we're going to look at. Um, and then we'll see where this series can go. I might actually have to buy a book from a Chinese bookstore. They have a few Library of America volumes available. And if it comes to that, I'll buy it one. Um, but let's see, um, what do I have here? Well, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, um, four books by John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, an economist, a liberal economist from the post-war era. Um, and we have four books by his. American Capitalism, The Great Crash, 1929, The Affluent Society, and The New Industrial State. And so we are going to talk about uh, economics for the first time in this podcast. Um, an American economist. American views on, on capitalism. Liberal views. And I'm struck reading, I'm reading it through it now, and I'm struck how he's considered a liberal and he's to the well to the left of the Democratic Party today. 
some of the stuff he says here if said by uh, candidates in contemporary politics he'd get criticized of being like a, a, a radical the way Sanders got criticized as being a radical in fact you know at times Galbraith is to the left of anything Sanders or Bernie Sanders has said so um, I look forward to jumping into this um, so we'll start with American capitalism the first of the books he wrote after the war and we'll see how that goes so that'll be about 10 episodes as we dig through four major books by John Kenneth Galbraith. I'm really looking forward to that. It's, it'll be nice to get away from um, Parkman for, for probably forever. Who knows when I'll ever pick up those books again. But anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with me through this incredibly long series on, on French Canada. And um, yeah, I'll see you next time with part one of my review of American Capitalism by John Kenneth Galbraith. Began to break, their ranks were flying. Brave wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head while the guns did rattle. And to his army said, How goes the battle? Is a decamp free?